And this is kind of where the problem arises, is that the decisions, these coping mechanisms that are undertaken by sanctioned states often align with autarkic policies that necessitate these countries to turn inwards and increase their natural resource dependence. And this is something that's of concern that in the future. Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. Today, the Middle East program is releasing a new report by Will Todman on the prospects for regional diplomacy around shared environmental concerns in the Gulf. To better understand what some of those environmental issues look like, I spoke with a scholar of environmental policy and sustainable development in Iran. We discussed Iran's environmental challenges, its strategies to address them, and how external factors, such as Western sanctions, exacerbate the government's environmental mismanagement. Later in the episode, I continue the conversation with my colleagues Will Todman and Danny Sharp, discussing Will's report and what role the United States can play catalyzing action around environmental issues in the Gulf. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dr. Shireen Hakim is the head of the Environment, Climate Security, and Public Health Unit at the Center for Middle East and Global Order, a new Berlin-headquartered think tank. She's an Iranian-American scholar of environmental policy and sustainable development in Iran and the Middle East and North Africa region. Shireen, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me, John. So you've thought a lot about environmental issues in Iran What is the environmental picture in Iran right now? Despite Iran's vast natural endowments, the country today faces a host of environmental challenges that threaten its sustainable development potential. While Iran's environmental crisis has been exacerbated by the impacts of climate change, the main culprit of the environmental decline we are witnessing in the country today stems from environmental changes induced by human activity. So there are three significant environmental issues that I'd like to highlight. The first is its water crisis, which has been exacerbated by decades of isolation, mismanagement of local resources, and the consequences of a prolonged drought. And the overexploitation of both ground and surface water has contributed to the desiccation of local bodies of water, dwindling groundwater reserves, desertification, and land subsidence exacerbated by Iran's inefficient agricultural sector, which consumes roughly 90% of the country's water sources. And despite declining water availability, Iran's agricultural sector has been pushed to expand to fulfill growing food demands. The second issue facing Iran is air pollution. Iranian cities provoked by the use of poorly refined petroleum and the use of outmoded vehicles routinely rank amongst the world's most polluted. And air quality has worsened also as a result of the increased frequency of dust and sandstorms in recent years. That's not only a local issue, but a regional issue. And air pollution has led to the closure of businesses and schools in Iran, particularly in the winter months, and contributed to health conditions and has had stark implications for economic productivity. And the last environmental issue is urbanization and demographic changes. So Iran continues to experience a growing population, which has in the last 50 years tripled to over 85 million people. And as a result of Iran's environmental decline, many Iranians, including farmers, have migrated to larger cities. 
despite the pollution and congestion, to find work and improve their living standards. So today, more than 70% of Iran's population resides in cities, and this is placing greater ecosystem stress on its urban areas. And you've written a lot about how U.S. and multilateral sanctions on Iran have made these problems even worse than they'd otherwise be. How does that work? I'd like to preface this by first saying that it's difficult to distinguish to what degree sanctions triggered damage to Iran and to what degree it was catalyzed by the government. And it's unlikely that a country like Iran with a long record of mismanagement and human rights violations would prioritize its environment even without sanctions. So with that being said, we have to acknowledge that sanctions have acted as a considerable and ongoing external shock for the last 44 years that has influenced policymaking decisions in Iran. There is no causal association between sanctions and environmental degradation because environmental outcomes are the result of various compounding factors. And ultimately, environmental management was at the discretion of Iranian leaders. But in my research, sanctions are understood as a shock to the system of a targeted state. So something I think policymakers largely undermined is that sanctioned states are dynamic and not static, and they have intricate economic, social, and environmental variables at play that respond to changes and shocks to the system like sanctions. So when sanctions intensified on Iran, There were four key direct impacts on the economy that disrupted environmental management. The first was there were banking complications, which rendered essential trade and international aid difficult to administer to Iran. The second is that there were divestments of international companies from the Iranian market and difficulties for Iran to attract foreign direct investments. The third point is it became difficult for Iran to import sustainable and clean technologies, partly because some fell under the dual-use item category, which are technologies or goods that have both civilian and wartime uses and were restricted. And the fourth point is there were severed opportunities for Iran to engage in the exchange of education and expertise with the global community. So these consequences generated responses from actors in the Iran system to sustain its weakened economy. And I refer to these responses as coping mechanisms. These coping mechanisms compounded with corruption, mismanagement of the environment and the economy and the impacts of climate change. So many of the coping mechanisms Iran resorted to under sanctions to sustain its economy and prove to the West that it could defy sanctions came at the cost of natural resource strain and exploitation as Iran turned inwards and pursued self-sufficiency schemes. And this is the main finding of my work is that the secondary impacts of sanctions can act as catalysts to induce difficulties for sustainable development in a sanctioned country. But it's a complex and dynamic process that depends highly on the distinct context of the targeted nation. Can you give me an example of how sanctions have been a catalyst for environmental degradation? Yeah, so one example of a coping mechanism that is associated with sanctions was in 2010, Iranians were consuming roughly 70 million liters per day of gasoline, but the country's refineries were capable of producing only around 40 million liters. And though Iran is oil rich, it did not have local capacity to refine oil to meet domestic demands. And it would rely on European partners to refine the oil and then re-import petroleum to meet domestic demands. So the U.S. Sasada sanctions in 2010 placed restrictions on firms involved in energy investments in Iran, the sale of refined petroleum to the country, and financial transactions with select Iranian banks. And the Ahmadinejad administration at the time 
resorted to coping mechanisms to meet local demands by employing short-term fixes where existing oil refineries were forced to run above full capacity and without regular maintenance, and the government resorted to transforming some petrochemical factories into oil refineries where very poor quality petroleum was generated called pyrolysis. And this is a byproduct of crude oil when fed into petrochemical factories. And it can be used as a synthetic fuel, but a locally produced petroleum contained 10 times the level of contaminants of imported fuel, which resulted in damage to automotive engines and worsened air quality, leading to stark health ramifications for the general public. So this example just illustrates how sanctions do not directly result in environmental degradation, and that ultimately these decisions were at the discretion of the Iranian government that wanted to maintain business as usual instead of focusing on declining demands. But the secondary impacts of sanctions acted as a catalyst to create conditions where the exploitation of natural resources became more attractive to the Iranian government to sustain its weakened economy. How grumpy do Iranians get about bad air, insufficient water? And for many farmers, I mean, as you suggested, rivers are going dry, pumps don't have water to pump. Does that create a a certain social movement? And does it even destabilize the country as we've seen protests in Iran in the fall? Are there ways in which the environmental degradation made those protests more dangerous for the government of Iran? In recent years, we've seen an increased frequency of protests because of water scarcity throughout the country. And in 2019, there were subsidy cuts that provoked large protests throughout the country. So we see that the environment is highly linked to potential threats for instability in the country. And this is becoming increasingly a reality in Iran. I think in regards to the Iranian government, they've largely undermined the potential for environmental issues to contribute to instability. And they've consistently prioritized economic gains over environmental sustainability. And Iranians now, even though the government has recurrently tried to suppress environmental activism, they're very well aware of the environmental decline in the country. If you travel there, especially in the winter months, for example, people will be wearing masks on the streets because of air pollution issues. Water scarcity is not an isolated issue. It's impacting rural and urban settings. So it's definitely part of the concerns of the general public. And I think that if we don't see significant reforms to the systemic inefficiencies of the Islamic Republic, it's likely to act as a threat multiplier in the future and add to existing social tensions in the country. As of now, the Women Life Freedom Movement was largely driven by the Generation Z and it's brought to the streets, you know, a largely young population, but the environmental issues have the potential to mobilize, you know, a different demographic of people that we have not seen necessarily contributing to these protests. So I think that threat is there and it's something that the Islamic Republic should take into consideration and prioritize. So there are going to be some people in the U.S. government who argue that more pressure on the Iranian government is good, more social protest is good. The way you solve the Iran problems in their breadth from the nuclear issue to human rights issues to the economic issues to everything else is to move beyond the Islamic Republic and have a new government. So the last thing we should be doing, this argument would be, would be alleviating pressure on the Iranian government. You want to double down on pressure on the Iranian government. How do you 
respond to that sort of logic chain? Right. In regards to the environment and the case, I think so one misconception about this research is that, you know, sanctions have acted as an impediment to sustainable development in Iran, but that's also largely because of the coping mechanisms I described, the decisions that the Iranian government has taken to sustain its economy at the exploitation of natural resources. Observing the Islamic Republic over the past few decades, we know that this is a government that has never really prioritized the environment. And even since its inception, the Islamic Republic has prioritized empowering its rural populace and empowering farmers by manipulating the natural flow of water and investing heavily in accelerated development to empower its economy with little consideration to the environment. So I think when we discuss concessions or you know, a transformation of sanctions in the context of Iran and whether that will result in improvements in Iran's environmental performance. I think that's highly unlikely unless we have, you know, significant changes within the Iranian system and also the way that they are dealing with environmental issues, because the main culprit of the environmental decline in Iran is not sanctions, but rather decades of mismanagement that's been exhibited by the Islamic Republic. If the U.S. wanted to play a constructive role relieving environmental pressures on Iran, what should it do? There's a number of ways that the U.S. can improve in terms of imposing sanctions in Iran. I think exploring sovereign mechanisms for environmental trade, similar to the financial special purpose vehicle mechanism for humanitarian trade, could be useful and encouraging the development of case-by-case waivers issued by the U.S. OFAC for the crucial exchange of clean technologies can promote technology and knowledge exchange with Iran that will ultimately benefit the environment. And another thing that could be useful is if there's a formation of a monitoring committee on sanctioned countries, which can oversee the social and environmental impacts on a target state. This would be useful in mitigating the detrimental impact sanctions could have on a targeted state that may also have spillover effects in other countries. Because environmental issues that are emanating in Iran can have spillover effects that will not only impact its neighbors, but also the world. And the U.S. is a significant player in attaining the global climate goals. And I think we have to be more critical of where our traditional forms of imposing foreign policy and sanctions may be counteracting these larger goals that we've set for climate. Let me ask a little bit about how you came to these issues. You were not born in Iran, but you were born to Iranian parents living in the Caribbean. You then went back to Iran and worked for a while. How did you find Iran? How did you get interested in environmental issues in Iran? And how did your on-the-ground experience affect how you work on these issues from outside of Iran now? So I've always been fascinated with Iran since I was young. The first time I traveled to the country, I was 17. I was consumed by the beauty of the country, but also very aware that the development potential of the country was limited by mismanagement and also in the years of escalation of multilateral sanctions. During my trips there, I noticed that my friends and family would commonly cite sanctions as an impediment to 
sustainable development. So this kind of sparked my interest. And when I embarked on my PhD, the JCPOA had just been implemented and many had hoped that Iran's economy would remain open to the West. And there was a lot of discussion over sustainable development projects and companies entering Iran's economy because of its huge potential. Uh, so I started studying this topic and Early on, I found that there was a paucity of research on sanctions and its impact on sustainable development and the environment, not only in the context of Iran, but on a global level. And I also found that in 2015, in Iran's intended nationally determined contribution submitted to the Paris Climate Conference of 2015 that resulted in the Paris Agreement, Iran had mentioned sanctions seven times in the 10-page document as an impediment to sustainable development. So the Iranian government was consistently referencing sanctions as an impediment, but there was not any scholarly work to substantiate these claims. And I became increasingly interested in trying to understand whether this was a reality or whether it was an excuse that the Iranian government was using to minimize their accountability for the environmental issues in the country. And that's kind of how I got into this research. And it sounds like your conclusion is it's a little bit of both. As I mentioned, the blame lies ultimately in the hands of the Iranian government. But I think what's significant from the findings of this research is that sanctions do create difficulties for a targeted state, especially one like Iran that has been under imposition of sanctions for decades. And I think what's novel about this research is that for years, individuals who have been crafting sanctions and imposing sanctions have undermined the adaptive capacity that sanctioned countries have to adapt to their conditions and find ways to evade sanctions. And this is kind of where the problem arises, is that the decisions, these coping mechanisms that are undertaken by sanctioned states often align with autarkic policies that necessitate these countries to turn inwards and increase their natural resource dependence. And this is something that's of concern that in the future, when sanctions policy is crafted in our increasingly interconnected world where environmental issues are of shared international importance, we should be concerned about how our foreign policy may be failing the environment and establish mechanisms to mitigate you know, potential detriments that sanctions may pose to the environment. Irene Hakim from the Center for Middle East and Global Order. Thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you. Dr. Hakim mentioned that Iran hasn't prioritized environmental diplomacy, but it will have a growing interest in regional diplomacy as its environmental issues worsen. Will, today we're releasing a report you wrote on prospects for environmental diplomacy in the Gulf. Why did you want to explore this? Recently, there have been a number of moves towards diplomatic normalization between different Gulf states. Part of this includes Iran, but even between other Arab Gulf states, Qatar and the UAE, for example. And so it does feel that we are in a new era of increased focus on diplomacy in the region. And I have read a lot of reports that talk about efforts to build confidence between Iran and its Arab Gulf neighbors. And quite often, there will be a line saying these states have shared concerns when it comes to environmental issues, maritime security, things like that. But it doesn't often get that much more focus. And so I wanted to look into this 
topic of is environmental diplomacy at the regional level feasible? Is it desirable? Could it actually help build trust between Gulf states in a way that could then allow them to tackle some of the harder security issues like ballistic missiles, Iran's support for proxies around the region, even its nuclear program. So we actually went to the Plowshares Foundation, which supports work that advances nuclear non-proliferation and made this argument that it's worth exploring if this is feasible or not to help de-escalate tensions in the region and then hopefully get to a place where you can have conversations on some of these hard issues. And my conclusion is that in some ways, I think environmental collaboration could be really helpful and that it is worthwhile to at least try it. It's not a silver bullet. It would not suddenly address the tensions that exist between these countries. But I think it has real promise, in part because efforts need to be at the regional level. It's not possible for any single state to fully protect themselves from the effects of climate change or environmental degradation on their own. It's also not zero sum. If Iran were to collaborate with Saudi Arabia, that would benefit both of them. So that's why I think this is an interesting area that should be explored. Do any Arab Gulf states have an interest in prioritizing environmental diplomacy? How do their approaches to environmental issues differ? We have seen a lot more interest among the oil-producing states in getting on the right side of environmental issues. Partly it's because they're susceptible to aspects of climate change, both in terms of temperature and rising sea levels. But I think there's also a bit of a sense that they want to be seen as responsible actors, as energy producers who are pumping the hydrocarbons that contribute to climate change, that they want to also be seen as solution providers on this. So I think on both a practical level, but also a reputational level, they want to be engaged on climate issues. And there's a way in which climate diplomacy gives them new opportunities. The fact that the UAE is hosting COP28 I think it's a sign that the UAE wants to be seen as a solution provider in the climate space. When you look at their relations with some of the surrounding states, climate provides an opportunity not for aid per se, but for using climate to provide a platform for cooperative engagement. One of the challenges is that when I talk to people both in Gulf governments, but also in Iran, about the Iranian government's engagement on the climate issue, it's a much lower priority. And I even spoke to a Gulf foreign minister about the effects of climate change on conflict with Iran. And I said, have the Iranians even thought about how the energy transition is going to affect Iran? And then what I keep hearing is, for the Gulf states, it's sort of an easy and obvious thing to try to do this. But for Iranians who in many ways are grappling with much more immediate kinds of questions, they really haven't thought through the energy transition. They haven't really thought through climate issues, although Iran is very affected by climate issues, as Shireen suggested. And it becomes a weaker platform, not because the answer is not theoretically there, but because the Iranian government hasn't prioritized engaging on it 
at a time when many Gulf governments have prioritized acting in the space, not necessarily because they need to accomplish things, but because they want to be active in that space. When we're talking about Arab Gulf states, we're talking about the GCC states and also Iraq. And these states really have quite different levels of focus on the environment. And they also have a degree of rivalry between them where they want to be leading this for the region. So particularly when we talk about Saudi Arabia and the UAE, both of them, as John said, are very keen to be acting on these issues as middle powers. And typically the way they act is through unilateral efforts. They like to lead their own initiatives. Saudi Arabia has both the Saudi Green Initiative, which is domestically focused, and then the Middle East Green Initiative, which is envisioned as a regional effort. But that is led by Saudi Arabia, as far as we can see so far, with quite little engagement from other states in the region. You know, similarly, the UAE is hosting COP28. I think this is really going to be a chance for the Emiratis to show their leadership on this. And, you know, they have some reason to claim early leadership on these issues. They've hosted IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, since 2009, and have been focused on this issue for longer than many of the neighbors. So when this becomes a piece of rivalry pushing for who is the most advanced on the climate, that really deters cooperation because ultimately this would need to have engagement of all of the states in the region, probably for it to be truly effective. So I think some of this rivalry is really going to undermine how that plays out. Could the United States play a role in fostering a regional dialogue on environmental issues? Is it in U.S. interests to facilitate that? So it's partly harder because we don't have a relationship with the Iranians. We're not talking directly with the Iranians right now. So as a broad regional platform, the United States is not especially well prepared to push that forward. But it does have important relationships with all the GCC states. And I could certainly imagine a more multilateral framework where the U.S. was contributing and Iran could also participate as long as it really wasn't under U.S. leadership. The U.S. brings a certain technological skill to this. The U.S. brings a certain diplomatic skill. The United States knows how to set up big multilateral processes that, that move forward. And so I think there's a lot of utility in the United States engaging on this issue, in the United States bringing countries together. Ultimately, as I think many people in the United States and in the Gulf understand, this has to be a regionally led initiative. But I think the United States has it a very useful supporting role, a useful organizing role, a useful catalyzing role, getting people to do this. The danger is that if the U.S. does too much, then everybody continues to look at the United States. So getting the balance right is hard, but I think there's a real opportunity to nudge these things in a useful direction. And that it's actually in U.S. interests as well. If we look at the current administration, the current U.S. administration, the national security strategy laid out two priorities for the Middle East, which was de-escalation and integration. I would argue that fostering dialogue on environmental issues would support both of those aims. And then President Biden has made the climate a big part of the administration's focus. 
And so I think it would be quite a natural fit for this administration to try to support in some way. And there's some reputational piece of this as well. U.S. officials get very frustrated whenever people talk about a U.S. withdrawal from the region because they say that hasn't yet happened and is not happening and rather it's shifting its role. Well, I think this could be a way to shift perceptions of how the U.S. intervenes in the region and to say they want to have a really positive role and help facilitate solutions which are going to benefit all actors around the region. And for this project, I spoke to a number of Iranians and some of them said to me, there is no way that the US would support this. The US just wants to bring down the Iranian regime and they pursue a divide and conquer strategy in the region. Well, doing something like this would disprove that to some degree. And I think it could help articulate the benefits that the US can have in the region at a time when a lot of people are talking about China's role. So I think there are real reputational benefits as well. Although one of the cautions is I was talking with a Republican colleague who said that when you think about long-term U.S. engagement in the Middle East, if you try to make a lot of it about climate, you have to appreciate that the Republican Party is aligned against the idea that, that climate is an issue. So if climate becomes a main pillar of U.S. engagement, then you have a Republican president and you have a Republican Congress that says climate isn't an issue we're going to engage with. You run the risk of starting something and not being able to follow through. Again, it can't all be coming from the United States. But if this becomes something that will take two or three or four years to get off the ground, it's a risk that the United States might not be committed to that course of action for two, three or four years, depending on where the elections go. And the marketing of this is important. You know, I have just used the word climate change, but in the paper, I talk a lot about environmental issues and not about climate change, in part because climate change is more controversial for some states in the region. And interestingly, actually, biodiversity is an issue that tends to gain support ap across the political spectrum. You could say this is to conserve the biodiversity that you have. So there might be some entry points that can gain a broader support, both in the US and in the region, which are seen in less political terms. And then you can perhaps build on that going forward. So I think ultimately, this is a first step that hopefully could be built on in the years ahead. Great. Well, congratulations on releasing your report today. I hope we get the opportunity to study this further. And thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Danny. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Music